You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. In the early 19th century, American evangelicals began to be increasingly robustly anti-intellectual. Whether this was the result of uh, legitimate theological uh, concerns, such as the doctrine of sola scriptura, uh, illegitimate theological concerns, uh, a function of our... our, uh, our, our uh, setting as Protestants or our setting as Americans, uh, whatever the cause, uh, one result has been to increasingly distance distance us from our theological history. Uh, as as an attempt to uh, to offset that, uh, Dr. Gavin Ortland has written a book called Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals: Why We Need Our Past to Have a Future. Uh, my name is Coyle Neal. I'm an associate professor of political science at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. Joining me today to help us think about this uh, this uh, uh, difficult topic for modern evangelicals is Dr. Gavin Ortland, uh, writer for the Gospel Coalition, senior pastor at First Baptist Church in Ojai, California, where he lives with his uh, wife and three kids, and author of the book we're talking about today, Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals. Uh, Dr. Ortland, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Great to be here. Uh, so I think the, uh, the the question that uh, many people are going to have on seeing the title of this book is, uh, what on earth is theological retrieval? Yeah, well, that's become sort of a technical term, but it, it simply refers to uh, the attempt to learn from historical theology to do contemporary systematic theology. So it's, in a way, combining these two disciplines that are sometimes seen as separate. Historical theology is where we're looking at the theology of the church throughout history. Systematic theology is uh, uh, a more constructive effort today, and we're trying to draw from historical theology to do uh, theology today. That's a very broad definition, but I like to give a broad definition because there's not really an overly technical, there's no you know, book you look up and find out whether you're doing theological retrieval or something like that. It's just a, it really, in, in some ways, it just refers to a set of instincts, um, just a, a sort of theological posture just a way of approaching the task of theology that is informed by the fact that we are storied creatures, that is to say we live in history, and also that we're a part of a, a community called the church, and that church extends both throughout space and also throughout time. So we're doing theology in the context of that community, and we've got a lot we can learn from others in that community. So, um, you know, I, I talk about this a lot in the book, but I think there's a lot of benefits for evangelicals right now at this time in history and in doing more theological retrieval. Yeah, I was uh, I was actually thinking about that a little bit as I was as I was reading through the book. Uh, so if if I if I start talking to someone about systematic theology, uh, there there are certainly uh, books that come to mind that I can be like, hey, you should go look at this systematic theology. Same thing with biblical theology, uh, and even to some extent, same thing with church history. But when I when I try to think about what are the what are the great texts uh, outlining a, a theology of theological uh, retrieval, that's that's harder, right? Uh, 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 it's, it's primary sources, uh, or it's, it's kind of nothing. So I, I really appreciate this book. I think it's a, it's a very useful edition. Um, uh, it's something that will, uh, will be very helpful there. Uh, but I think that does, does kind of raise the question, why should evangelicals care, uh, especially evangelicals who are deeply dedicated to the doctrine of sola scriptura? Uh, isn't, isn't my Bible enough? Well, okay, so there's maybe just a couple things we could get into for, for this question. Um, maybe an entry point would be 
the reality of conversions into Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy that we see. This is a, a pretty um, common trend these days. Uh, I think it can be exaggerated. It's not like it's happening to all evangelicals or something like that. But there are a lot of evangelicals uh, who have uh, moved to the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church. And I do think that whatever else we might say about that, one of the things that I often hear as I talk with people who've made that journey is there's a real desire for historical depth. And I do understand in some ways what they're reacting against. Many evangelical churches are really pretty historically shallow. And I'm an evangelical. I'm grateful for evangelicalism. That's where I locate myself. But I do recognize I see this as an area where we can be a bit underdeveloped and we need some help. And I think this may be true of some evangelicals more than others. You know, it's a, I'm, I realize I'm painting with a broad brush here. But nonetheless, I think um, for many evangelicals, the 1990s is ancient history. Um, we don't really have any sense of connection to the past. And um, I do think that manifests itself in various ways. And there's some, I like to call them eccentricities or just oddities that characterize our faith and practice that may not uh, be a reflection of Christians from other times and areas where we're very different as evangelicals. Um, some of the disputes about the doctrine of God that have come up uh, in recent years, there was a, a big debate about the doctrine of the Trinity in 2016 and the whole idea of um, the eternal functional subordination of the Son. And that's, for people who aren't familiar with that, that sounds like a lot of big words, but um, it really is an important thing that came up, and it was pretty divisive and pretty um, pretty powerful um, debate. And uh, some of these things that have come up, I think, are related to our lack of historical awareness. We, we haven't really done our homework on some uh, doctrines that have been really important at other times in church history, like the doctrine of the Trinity would be an example of that. So I think... Uh, you know, as I look at things, I look at evangelicalism today, and as one of that tribe, I'm saying that I think we've we can strengthen our faith and practice in some ways by being more uh, engaged with our own historical roots. Um, that's one answer to your question. It's not the only answer. There's more technical things we could say just about what does it mean? What is the role of history in our theology? And what does it mean to be a Protestant Christian? You know, I think many Christians think of being a Protestant Christian means <clears throat> that it's a sort of me and my Bible approach, that basically because the Bible is our highest court of authority, um, which is what we mean when we say sola scriptura, that means the Bible alone is our highest court of authority. Right. But it doesn't mean that it's the only resource that we have with which to do theology. I mean, a good example of this would be sermons. Um, sermons are not infallible, um, and they are not our—they are not at the level of Scripture in their authority or in their usefulness. But they're still useful. Uh, it's still good to listen to sermons. And I would say, similarly, uh, for those who are skeptical of church history and say, "Well, all I need is the Bible." Um, there's so much about that that I think we'd want to tackle. But one thing to say is, just because something isn't infallible doesn't mean that it's not useful. 
And I think church history can be incredibly useful, especially because of the unique challenges of our culture. And maybe we can keep getting into that as we keep talking here, but I don't want to go on too long. No, no, no. This is this is good, and I'm I'm glad you talked about you mentioned preaching because I was going to ask kind of what is the what is the practical side of this, right? How uh, how how does it affect kind of the day to day life of the church? Uh, to to use the, uh, the 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 debate about the Trinity, which uh, is one of those things. Uh, uh, and this is this is kind of evangelical uh, in talk for for our listeners. But uh, uh, the debate over the Trinity a, a few years back uh, was, I think, kind of simultaneously really fascinating. Obviously, a deeply very important topic. And uh, also kind of sad because people really brought out the nukes. I mean, it was uh, uh, people people who are otherwise on the same side theologically uh, had just just trained the uh, the uh, trained the uh, the guns at each other and, and uh, gave a, a full broadside. And uh, uh, so uh, uh, we're uh, we're in practice. You've, you've already talked to, again. You've already talked about preaching, but uh, practically, uh, how can the past be helpful for the problems we're facing now? Where uh, uh, what is uh, uh, what is the use of theological retrieval uh, in in kind of a broad stroke? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great question, and th- there's certainly many specific things I can think of that might be examples of that. Uh, we since we've already mentioned preaching, the the uh, the word liturgy comes to my mind um, as another example of when there are corporate worship gatherings. What use is theological retrieval? Well. Um, there's a whole lot that might be useful to shape our our worship expressions, and it, sometimes evangelicals are very anti-liturgy and very very low church, very free. But we can have our own functional liturgies, and that, you know, almost every tradition has some kind of liturgy, even if it's not recognized as such. Liturgies can just be a reflection of just um, particular traditions and particular practices that become. Uh, normalized in our worship. So there's lots of specifics we could go to like that, but I would say, and this is part of my own testimony for how I got into this topic, I would want to point to a more general benefit of just the shaping influence it has in the whole posture we have towards the gospel, towards God, towards the Christian faith. It really, you know, and this is my own story. I never set out to be interested in church history or something like that. It's sort of like if you pick up a novel and you're not planning on getting into any new reading, you've, you've got enough reading to go or something like that. But if you pick up a novel and it strikes your interest and then you just find you can't put it down. And that's been my experience with church history. I, I just find it so interesting and so fascinating. And my experience has been that it has really shaped me in my at the deepest levels of for example in my view of god and god's transcendence god's glory um my interest has been and a lot of my research has been in a medieval theologian named anselm and anselm is not super well known um but one of the books that he wrote was about the question how can a just god show mercy and forgive sins and the whole question was uh, driving at that, the, the, excuse me, the whole book was driving at that question. And I find it so interesting that our culture has the opposite question as Anselm. We have the question, well, how could love God ever judge sins? Hmm. And Anselm, because he lives in a medieval context where they were wrestling with different questions, they had different presuppositions to the task of theology, I have found that really helpful and instructive 
as a um, as a way to um, consider our own culture and some of the eccentricities of our own culture, and not just assume that the questions I have are the questions that other Christians have had at other times. So Anselm um, operated the way he did because he had such a huge view of God. He had such a God-centered understanding of the task of theology. And he had such a a strong emphasis upon God's glory and God's honor. Um, And I've just found that really useful. It's difficult to draw a one-for-one correlation like, well, because I read Anselm, this is the one thing that happened. I would describe it more as a general shaping influence. It's sort of like if you go see the Grand Canyon and you're absolutely enthralled by its beauty, or if you go live abroad for three months and travel throughout Europe and, and visit museums and historical sites and you come home and someone says, well, what did you learn? Well, it's really difficult to encapsulate that in a, in a short way. It's a shaping experience that, that uh, changes you as a person. And that's been my experience with church history. I think uh, reading the, the classic theology of the church is a deepening and strengthening, uh, shaping influence upon us. And I think it will, it will manifest itself in so many ways it, for me as a minister in my preaching, in my personal life, but also just in our, our, our prayer life, our view of God. Earlier, we mentioned the Trinity. This would be a good example of a doctrine that's extremely practical because every time we pray or worship or sing, we are speaking to the Trinity. We're not speaking to some generic God out there. We're speaking to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And John Owen used to argue that we should have communion distinctly with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. I think it's helpful to have uh, accuracy in our minds about who the Trinity is, um, and uh, rather than vagueness in our minds and hearts about who our God is. So um, I think retrieval has a real uh, deep shaping value, even while, of course, I don't think all Christians need to be sort of experts at it and do it in a technical way. Yeah, and I will say, uh, Owen, John Owen's Communion with God would be an excellent book for evangelicals to retrieve. Uh, mm. Although I, I actually, I almost never do this, but I will recommend the the abridged modern language version because <laughs> Owen, man, he's uh, he's rough. Uh, yeah. uh, so so I let's let's say I agree with all of this, which because I do agree with all of it. But let's say that I'm uh, I, I agree with everything you've said, but. I'm a, a rural bivocational pastor who's working a full-time job and writing my sermons on Saturday. Uh, do, do I really have to go out and pick up a, uh, a book of you know, readings from the medieval church? Like, uh, what, what is that going to look like for, for sort of the, the average person out there? I mean, I, I'm, I'm an academic, so I have time for this. Uh, 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 I'm, I guess I, I didn't ask you about your church beforehand, but I'm assuming that your church gives you a little bit of time during the week for, for this sort of thing. But uh, most, most evangelicals are either church members, and so they have their full-time jobs uh, and, and have somewhat limited time, or they're the pastors uh, who, who also have other jobs and maybe don't have time for this. Uh, what are we supposed to do if we're kind of the man-on-the-street evangelical? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, I, I certainly want to express my sympathy for that situation. And as a, as a father of several young kids and busy pastor, sure. I, I can fully relate to that uh, myself. So I, I, I really get that. And I would say, um, just to relieve a little bit of the pressure, I mean, I don't think it's the kind of 
thing where every pastor needs to be reading all throughout church history. <laughs> you know, it, there's a realistic dynamic to this that some some pastors will be more interested in theological study than others. Some pastors will be more interested in being engaged in kind of the intellectual world of theology than others. Some pastors will have particular intellectual interests. You know, one there might be pastors who they have a real interest in the Puritans and they go do a deep dive in the Puritans, and that's great. So I just want to leave uh, room for pastors to find their own path to a degree. But this is a general value that I would say I do think it is deeply valuable for pastors, especially those who are regularly engaged in teaching and preaching ministry, to cultivate uh, the life of the mind, to keep reading, to keep learning. Um, I see that as really valuable. And um, it's easy to let it uh, slide because we won't necessarily immediately notice the the loss if we stop reading and stop learning. You can we can probably still produce sermons of good quality for a, a while. But I think over the long haul, we really will need to be students of theology our, our whole lives. And certainly that means we're students of scripture first and foremost. But not just scripture. I mean we want to also learn from other resources that we can find. Um, most people listening to this have probably had experiences where a particular sermon or a particular book by a Christian author has really helped them. It has really shaped them. It's, they've really found value in it. And I, I just think that uh, we want to keep doing that. And I think one of the encouragements I would give is that sometimes the older books, the classic texts of church history, are actually a little bit easier to get into and to read and to understand. Now, that's not always the case. Right. But some some of them were written for the purpose of catechesis, which means teaching. They were written designed to be read broadly as, an, as a sort of introductory text, and some of them are very well organized. For example, Thomas Aquinas, the great theologian of the medieval church, one of his great works is the Summa Theologica, and that was really meant to be a, an introductory text, and it actually is pretty well organized pretty uh, clear uh, in English translation. Now, it's, parts of it will be pretty foreign in terms of the content, but it's not, a, I mean, I remember taking philosophy classes in college where I thought, I don't think the author was trying to be understood. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, I, you don't have that experience with these classic texts. And some of them are really brief, like, say, for example, Athanasius, the Church Father, his book on the incarnation of the Word. That's actually a very brief book could be read in one sitting in an afternoon. And it, these classic texts have an honesty and an urgency about them because they're written in real-life contexts. Whatever else one says about church history, I think the impression people have is, oh, this will be really boring in comparison to the latest devotional book I might come across. My experience has been, generally speaking, the opposite of that. The classic texts of church history are so exciting and so easy to get into. So, so many of them are written uh, in, in the deepest human experiences of life. You know, you think of Martin Luther and, and his struggles with his conscience and the way he found freedom when he understood the doctrine of justification. That is the, uh, a deep human experience. And underneath his writings, you can feel the, the kind of existential force of that experience um, coming through. And that's true for these other writings in, in the early church. One of the uh, theologians I engage with a lot is named Boethius, and one of his famous books is about God's foreknowledge and how that relates to human freedom. 
and it was not a speculative exercise. He wrote it while uh, unjustly imprisoned and awaiting his execution. And it's that circumstance that led to the book. And you feel that as you read. It's a mixture of poetry and prose. It's a fascinating, beautifully written book. So I, I suspect that pastors who, you know, I, while sympathizing with the struggle, my encouragement would be to the extent that within your own calling and your own sense of uh, ability in, in your schedule, able to dip into these classic texts, I do think you won't regret it. You'll find them to be valuable and useful. Well, to, uh, to continue to, to play the uh, the devil's advocate here, uh, you, you spend a lot of time in the book, which were, if you, if you want to get into the uh, uh, kind of the, uh, the the meat and potatoes of the book and talk about some of the specific subjects, happy to do that. Uh, and I'll encourage all of our readers to also, because you have some fascinating discussions. Uh, uh, you, you spend a lot of the time in the book talking about people like uh, Anselm and Aquinas and a John, and I should have written down which John it was, right? Uh, the Eastern Orthodox uh John of Damascus. John right. of Damascus, yes. Uh, uh, so, let's let's say again, I'm I'm on board with uh, uh, reading Luther, Calvin, the Puritans, uh, maybe even the Church Fathers, right? Uh, Augustine and Tertullian and Clement and so on. Uh, but at, at some point, when when we're reading someone from that thousand years in the Middle Ages, when we're reading uh, Duns Scotus or John of Damascus or, or Bonaventure, uh, we're going to run across Mary, right? We're, we're going to run across the worship of images. Uh, uh, we're going to j- run across something that we would, you know, quite rightly join the reformers in, in condemning. Uh, how should we engage in, in retrieval uh, with these kinds of materials? Why why isn't it better just to let these go, guys go by the wayside and and stick with the stuff that we we know is uh, is more theologically uh, in our court? Mm-hmm. Okay, well that, that's this is a question I really wrestled with because I want to be able not to overcorrect. I think that's one of the most common temptations when we're advancing an argument in an academic context is to give an overcorrection, and we swing the pendulum way to the other side of a particular error that we see. So if the error that I'm responding to um, in this book, or at least one of the errors, is evangelicals neglecting church history, and especially neglecting uh, the early and medieval church, Right. Um, I don't want to overcorrect. I don't want to say, oh, yes, you know, the medieval. And there are attitudes that I come across at times like this. The medieval church is the answer to all our problems. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, that's sort of the mentality that, that some people have. And I don't share that mentality. It shows a staggering to... ignorance of the medieval church, too. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there's many, many things that will, will constantly throughout every era of church history be critically distinguishing the good from the bad. Sure. Um, we'll never be uncritically just absorbing things. Um, so I've been wrestling with trying to find the right balance of humility and learning along with critical engagement and not being naive. And I would say that what that has all resulted in for me is a more generous, more generous attitude towards the medieval church than I had growing up and then some evangelicals have. And let me explain why I feel that way. Um, the main reason, well, one of the big factors for me has been the attitude of the reformers, um, the original Protestants. So here we're getting into the question of what does it mean to be a Protestant? Um, and a helpful part of answering that is to consider, well, what did the first Protestants understand their movement to be? How did they cast their efforts in relation to church history? 
And the original Protestants, people like Luther and Calvin, and then a few others, I spent a lot of time with Francis Turretin, who was a second-generation Reformed theologian following Luther and Calvin. Mm -hmm. um, they were very, very careful in the way that they postured their efforts in relation to church history. They were very um, positive about the church fathers. They, they both drew much from the church fathers as well as cast their whole effort as a return to the Church Fathers. At one point, Calvin says, all we're trying to do is go back to the purity of the fourth century, before all of these accretions had developed throughout the medieval era. And so they had a view that there were ups and downs. Church history is not a, not a flat line of just equal health at every moment. Doctrinally and spiritually, there are periods of renewal and declension, up and down like that, church history. But they, were, they had a very positive view of the early church, by and large. And then when it comes to the medieval church, they understood themselves not to be starting over. They understood themselves to be reforming the church. They didn't think we're starting a new church. They thought of themselves as reforming a backslidden church. And they were very careful to say, number one, we are not the first people to come along to protest some of the abuses that we see. There is a long line of dissent that goes back throughout the medieval era. Wycliffe, John Wycliffe and John Huss are two most visible examples, but there were others they pointed to as well. And John Huss, the whole Bohemian Reformation is this whole movement that occurs prior to what we call the Reformation that was a huge tradition of dissent from what were seen as abuses within the Roman Catholic Church. And then they also, and this is so interesting, they also cast their, they, they saw themselves in continuity. Uh, they, they affirmed the preservation of the true church in every generation. They said the true church has never died, and they appealed to the idea of a remnant to do that. Yeah, the, one of the texts that both Calvin and Turretin use is in 1 Kings 19, when Elijah says, Lord, I'm the only one left. And uh, God says to him, I've got 7,000 others. And they appealed to this text, and they said, there's always been a remnant throughout church history. Whatever, however dark things got, the lights never went out. God's always preserved a true people. And they developed theological reasons for that and biblical reasons for that. And therefore, I feel, because that was their attitude, I feel that modern-day Protestants should not be more restrictive than they were. And that um, we are able to look back at the medieval church, for example, and take a more balanced posture of saying, on the one hand, we want to recognize what we regard for as Protestants as errors and abuses. Um, on the other hand, we also want to see what can we learn. There may be things we can learn from this church. And we also want to see um, where are there areas of continuity. Um, and there may be those as well. And I, I've just become convinced that for us, you know, we're facing very particular challenges here in the 21st century in the West where I live. And the temptations that are, we are most susceptible to today, I think, are generally not the temptations that were people were susceptible to in the medieval era. We have, there's such temptations to, to worldliness and pragmatism and so many things that are probably the most pressing temptations upon us that reading Anselm and Aquinas and Duns Scotus, it's not likely that they're going to be pulling us in the same direction as those two. In fact, the errors that they made might even be more visible to us because of the passage of time. But there's things that they said also that have incredible value. Uh, there, I mentioned the doctrine of God earlier. Um, right. There's a lot we can learn from some of the 
areas that they specialized in. In the book, I also talk about the doctrine of angels. And I talk about a few other particular theological categories that were developed in the medieval era that we don't think about as much as evangelicals, and we might benefit from thinking about more. So I am open to continuing to revisit this question of um, where, you know, I don't want to overcorrect. I, I want to be open to, you know, keep fidgeting with the, the nuances here. How do we get this exactly right? But I'm committed to the broad vision that um, we can have an attitude towards the entire history of the church, that this is all our tradition. None of it is some alien thing that we have nothing to do with, and that um, there will be a, a place for humility before the tradition, learning from tr the tradition at every moment, even while we uh, engage critically in light of Scripture with where our differences may lie. And I'm a Protestant, where Protestant theology differs from uh, Roman Catholic theology. I side with the Protestant side. Um, but I also think it's, it's because even some of the differences, you know, things like praying to the saints, worship of icons, even some of those things can sometimes be caricatured at the popular level by Protestants. Sure. Sure. And it's important to not have an attitude, as some Protestants have had, that like basically the whole medieval church, they were just unintelligent for their view on this because it's just obviously bad. You know, these things, praying to icons, that whole thing in the Eastern church, that made sense to people for particular reasons. And they were very, the discussions were actually very nuanced. And there was actually people on both sides of that at that right. time of history. So all of that is to say, I, you know, I want to be careful with this, but I do think we can, at the very least, I would say we can uh, engage with and learn from the whole history of the church. I appreciate that you start your book uh, with uh, a discussion of Philip Schaff, right, whose uh, eight-volume history I'm, I'm sure many of our listeners have, have uh, seen in the uh, the Christian book catalog on, you know, 500% discount or uh, uh, whatever they, they usually sell it at. And, and I will say that uh, his volume on the Middle Ages is actually a really good place to start uh, because he does just this great job of navigating kind of the, the, the ins and outs and uh, what's what's going on theologically and what's going on historically and, and so on. Um, and uh, uh, without uh, both while being generous and without pulling any punches uh, when when punches shouldn't be pulled. Uh, uh, so can you, uh, uh, with with all of that that we've said in mind about kind of the the Middle Ages and, and reading through some of this, uh, can you talk to us a little bit about Hodge and uh, uh, Charles Hodge and Philip Schaff? And uh, these are two guys uh, for the listeners who don't know uh, in the same denomination, right? Or at least in the same sort of. Uh, uh, in the same side of Protestant Christianity, both Calvinists. I guess I don't know if they're both Presbyterians or not, uh, but they're they're both they're both Calvinists, uh, both in kind of systematic theology. They're they're going to be largely in agreement, and and yet you you use them as kind of frameworks for two different approaches. So can you can you talk to us about those two different frameworks? Yeah, Philip Schaff and Charles Hodge to me are helpful as representative of two different ways to be Protestant or two different ways to understand Protestant identity in relation to church history. Uh, Philip Schaff was in the German Reformed Church um, and, and taught right. at Mercersburg, um, uh, the theological seminary at Mercersburg in the 19th century, and then Hodge, of course, over at Princeton. And um, Others were associated with them as well. John Nevin was another key player in what would be called the Mercersburg theology. But basically, uh, Schaff and Nevin are emphasizing that Protestantism was not um, 
a, a, a sort of restart to the church. They're emphasizing that uh, they, they speak of it as the sort of the legitimate offspring or the outgrowth of the Middle Ages. And he says the spiritual wealth that came before the uh, Protestant movement belongs to us as Protestants. They see more continuity and organic development throughout church history as Protestants. And Hodge, so within their denomination, um, some others within the German Reformed Church uh, really didn't like that and took very much a more separatist view of Protestantism. And they 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 saw continuity in church history happening only in separatist movements, movements that are reacting against the Roman Catholic Church. Hodge was more nuanced. Hodge took the view that, no, he, technically he agreed, but he really was worried about where that was going. And right. Right. Um, so I, I see that is a, a helpful way of just getting into the issue that the book is interested in. And that's been a part of my uh, journey and, and reflection. Namely, what does it mean to be a Protestant Christian in, as you look back throughout church history? If you're an evangelical Protestant, as I am, and you're reading the medieval theologians, should you be thinking of yourself as peeking over the wall into some other tradition and sort of stealing what doesn't belong to you? Or should you be thinking of yourself as um, engaging your own tradition. And this, you know, Anselm is my brother in Christ, and I'm reading him. Uh, and I, I think that um, there is a good case to be made for a greater emphasis upon continuity uh, in the direction of Schaff's vision than is often recognized among evangelical Protestants today. But I want to leave in here, there's a lot of room for nuance with that and a lot of specific questions that then also still need to be worked out. Well, uh, I, I want to, you are, you are free to decline this question since I didn't give it to you in advance and it may be too technical a one to, to do off the cuff. Um, uh, but you, you do mention in the book uh, uh, the, the doctrine of the church, right? So, so ecclesiology. Uh, how, uh, how does that, how does our attitude as Protestants to the church historically uh, get nuanced, maybe is, is the way to ask that, uh, when when we don't just think in terms of this is historical development and Anselm was writing in the and you know 1050 or whenever he was writing, uh, and uh, and I'm living today. But when we start thinking, well, there is actually a doctrine of the church uh, that that I believe as someone on the other side of the Reformation that involves preaching the gospel, uh, proper administering of the sacraments, church discipline, and so on. Uh, does does that affect our view of what we're trying to retrieve? Uh, does that uh, does that does that actually close us off from them if they're not you know preaching the gospel, if they're not properly administering the sacraments, uh, if they're not rightly exercising church discipline, or or is that one of those things that we look we need to say look that's just a we're 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 in a different part of history and we we can't reasonably expect them to agree with uh, to to be talking the same language as us. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a that's a really good question. I'll take a, a quick stab at it. <laughs> well, you're, again, you're free to. Uh, I sprung it on you because I just thought of it, so you're free to pass on it. Well, it's a, this is a great question that I definitely can't give a comprehensive answer to right just off the top of my head. But a few things that come to mind that might be useful just in the process of continuing to think about this. One is that um, there's a passage in in John Calvin's writings in the Institutes where he's defining what a true church is, and he's talking about the marks mm-hmm. of the church, right. uh, the preaching of the word, uh, the sacraments, church discipline, and he says he he, he wants to be so careful not to encourage an overly re- a restrictive 
application of those principles. So he's saying, look, there's a lot of churches out there, and I think his language is, they swarm with faults. (laughs) So I think of a beehive swarming with bees. It's like they swarm with faults. But he says, in the way they do the sacraments and church discipline and the preaching of the word. But they're still churches. They're very imperfect. They're very broken. But they're not uh, false churches. And um, that is a value and a a concern that I see in Calvin there that I think is really worth making sure we've got in an answer to this question. You know, we want to leave room for um, imperfections in how the church at one point or another is functioning uh, without necessarily saying, well, therefore, because of this error, it's not the true church at all. And I've wrestled with this most specifically in relation to the doctrine of justification, Hmm. because I think the doctrine of justification is an extremely important doctrine for the gospel, foundational to the gospel. And yet we recognize that there's been some disputes about justification throughout church history. In fact, the standard Protestant distinction between justification and sanctification, one is initial, the other is progressive. That's actually not represented by many, many, many eras of church history before the Reformation. And so then what what do we do? Do we just, you know, say, well, they got justification wrong, they weren't Christians, you know? And uh, so I've had to wrestle through that, and I've thought, on the one hand, first of all, it helps me to recognize what I just said a moment ago. There can be errors in how we understand something. And even Calvin and Owen and others like that, the the strongest of the, the Protestant theologians, will say this, that a person can misunderstand the doctrine of justification, but still experience the reality of justification. And so we've got to have a distinction between the perfect understanding and expression of a doctrine on the one hand and the actual lived experience of it on the other hand. We also want to distinguish between the official teaching of the church at any given point and what God the Holy Spirit might just do perspective of that teaching in the church. I mean, there might be someone who's raised in a church that teaches from abysmal theology, and yet they're at their Bible study reading their Bible, and the Holy Spirit awakens their hearts to the truth. That's what happens with Luther. He's in the Roman right. Catholic Church when he experiences justification personally. So I want those distinctions have helped me, and I want us to be careful not to. I think the, the concern I have is that some Protestants are dismissive in a, in a too wholesale way of particular sure. eras of church history, and it it, it uh, doesn't uh, help us appreciate all the nuances that are present. Another factor here, of course, is the separatist movements. Many right. of these separatist movements did have appreciation of justification. Um, so uh, those are some things that, to me, have helped me, at least on the issue of justification. Yeah. Yeah, and I... I uh something that I find both both fruitless and sort of comforting if, if you can have both those things at the same time is is the question of would this historical thinker that I, I really appreciate you know the, the, the Augustine or the Tertullian or whatever uh, if you did explain say the doctrine of justification to them uh, 
would they agree with it? Would they say, yes, that's true? And I, I think that actually can't, because you, can, you can't stop and think, all right, well, if John Calvin were talking to this guy, what would the response have been? Uh, now, it's, it's fruitless because there is no way you could ever possibly know that. Uh, but encouraging because you can at least kind of see, well, yeah, these guys are talking the same language, right? There's a, there's a family resemblance there. Uh, that's uh, 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 not uh, not a one-to-one correlation, but you can see where there there could potentially be a, an agreement. Uh, so uh, I want to uh, uh, to wrap us up since we're we're coming up on uh, on on about an hour here. Uh, where uh, if if someone wants to start doing theological retrieval, uh, they say, "Hey, I I uh, I want to dig into the past," uh, and I realize some of that's going to depend on whatever specific issue uh, they're they're thinking about. But uh, if just in general they say, "Hey, I, I want to jump in the deep end and I want to grab a book uh, from before you know 1990," uh, where would you suggest they start? Uh, give us give us some uh, recommendations. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, a couple examples of things that might be helpful to. Uh, take a first look at. One would be there, uh, going first to the Puritans. There's a wonderful collection of books called the Puritan Paperbacks, and so many of those books are life-changing books. I mean, so uh, theologically and devotionally rich at the same time. That's a great series to check out. Um, going back to the Church Fathers, there's a, a series that's put out by St. Vladimir's Press called Popular Patristics, and there's a, a many, many um, of the best-known uh, writings of the Church Fathers that are published in that series. Um, earlier I mentioned On the Incarnation of the Word by Athanasius. In that edition, there's the introduction by C.S. Lewis to the book, and the introduction is called On the Reading of Old Books. And that four pages or so, or five pages of that, is probably a better and more eloquent expression of Anything I've said anywhere in my book, however many pages you have, because C.S. Lewis is so eloquent, and he puts it so well of the value of reading older books. Um, And he's talking more generally, not even just about theology specifically. But uh, then there's a number of other books in the popular patristics, you know, Basil's On the Holy Spirit. Books like that, they're, again, not that hard to get into and really useful. Um, A book that I would recommend every Christian consider reading is St. Augustine's Confessions. It is so... Uh, it, it's just got it all. It, it, the theological profundity of it is amazing, but also the spiritual, the, the yearning quality to it, the, the sense of this man's love for God, the sense of his um, his soul's hunger for God. Um, it's a deeply uh, powerful portrait of just what uh, what Christianity feels like in real life to a person. And I think many modern people today will relate to St. Augustine's particular pathway of trying everything else in life to satisfy you, and none of it works. And then finally he finds God. He compares his conversion to when you wake up on a Saturday morning, but you're, you just lie in bed for a long time until finally you work up the motivation to get out of bed. He says, that's how I became, came to Christ. I just was waiting, and finally I got there. Um, but there's so much of that book that will resonate, I think, with modern readers. So, uh, you know, and then I give a few other examples in the book for those who do want to go. Let's say someone's listening to this and they're pretty knowledgeable with church history and they're just wanting some new ideas. You know, some of the neglected figures that I draw attention to, one of them is Boethius, the 6th century philosopher I mentioned earlier. His, I, I thought of him because um, he's someone who was extremely well-known throughout most of church history up until the last 150 years or so, and then he seems to have fallen a bit away 
and um, C.S. Lewis again has written a lot about Boethius. C.S. Lewis said, up till 150 years ago, it'd be hard to find any Christian who doesn't love his book, The Consolation of Philosophy, but that today it's fallen away a little bit. Um, and then I give a few other examples in the book that people can look up if they're interested. But those, just off the top of my head, those are some maybe starting points for people. Sure. And those are those are all great starting points. Uh, I, I've not read uh, Basil's on the Holy Spirit, but the, those others are good. Um, uh, well, it's the uh, the practice here on Christian Humanist Profiles to uh, give our guests the last word. So here's your chance to uh, say anything you want to say about your book, uh, about theological retrieval in general, uh, about any one of those theologians, uh, about uh, you know life, the universe, everything, uh, uh, whatever you like. Okay. Well, lots of power in my hands right now. No, uh, there you go. <laughs> um, Abuse it. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I would say as a way to sum up our conversation, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, to sum up what I um, am essentially really hoping to see from this book has been the experience of what a benefit it is to uh, engage the theology of the church from other eras. And the way I've described that is through the metaphor of travel. If anyone's listening to this who has studied abroad or spent significant time in a different culture, I bet they can appreciate uh, that metaphor. Uh, There's something really good and healthy about going to a different part of the world and genuinely understanding the differences, genuinely appreciating sympathetically why people think differently about everything, culture, faith, etc., from different parts of the world. And you begin to realize, wow, there's nothing inherently superior about my culture. Um, there may be pros and cons to my where I'm from as well as where I am visiting. Uh, neither one is perfect, but I can learn and see some of the blind spots of my own culture from visiting this other culture. That's the metaphor I've used for retrieval, because I think the same dynamic happens when you go back through time as when you go to a different place. Um, It gives you perspective on your own context, your own culture. I think there's enormous benefit to that. And um, it's, you know, Karl Barth once used the language of the strange new world of the Bible. And he was moving from a liberal theology to uh, a one with more emphasis upon God's transcendence, and he spoke of the strange new world of the Bible. That sense of entering into a new world, that sense of entering into a new um, culture, a new context, uh, is what I have experienced with church history. There is, it's a strange new world, um, but there's much benefit to be had, both for checking your own presuppositions, but also for the sheer learning of. Um, this is how others have contributed to the task of theology, and in many respects, we are standing on their shoulders today. So I would use that metaphor as a kind of summing up comment to say, this is what I have experienced personally, what I'm trying to share and encourage others toward in the book. I do think it will enrich and strengthen evangelical Protestants today amidst all the cultural challenges we're facing if we are more rooted in history and I think there's uh, great value in it for us as the church and us as individual Christians. 
Well, thank you again, Dr. Ortland, for joining us on Christian Humanist Profiles, and thank you listeners for joining us as well. If you have questions or comments, please feel free to post them on the show notes at christianhumanist.com, send an email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com, or comment on the Facebook page. And be sure to pick up a copy of Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals uh, from Crossway. Christian Humanist Profiles is a program on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Be listening for the next episode of Christian Humanist Profiles files.